Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 108 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Now, as we transition away from reference books, now going into the month of October, I have selected Greek literature, in specific, the poem written by Homer entitled The Odyssey. Uh, this translation that I'll be reading obviously is uh, in English, even though the original was in Greek. Um, so this one was published by S Samuel Butler in 1897. Now, why would I why would I read the Odyssey? Well, one of the reasons is I came across this website entitled Bad Reviews of Good Books, and <laughs> Well, these two reviews stuck out in my mind most vividly. So let me read the first one to you. My goodness, was this a boring book or what? This was one of the worst books I've ever read. I mean, I get that it's a classic and everybody should like it and all of that other pretense, but I did not enjoy one bit of this book, I'm sorry to say. And the second reviewer says this. So, 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 so boring. Oh my goodness, I wanted to cry. And by golly, I don't know what other defense you need and I need to be inspired and motivated to read this book than these two lovely reviews. Now, a little bit of context into the Odyssey. So, this was a poem, obviously written by Homer, um, and tells the story of Odysseus, king of Ithaca, who is coming back from the Trojan War, wandering about um, to get to his kingdom of Ithaca, and he's been wandering for 10 years, okay? Uh, but evidently, the perspective that this poem comes from is only from the final six weeks of his journey and his wandering. So that's where we will enter with chapter one of the Odyssey. The Gods in Council, Minerva's Visit to Ithaca. The challenge from Telemachus to the suitors. Tell me, O muse, of that ingenious hero who traveled far and wide after he had sacked the famous town of Troy. Many cities did he visit, and many were the nations with whose manners and customs he was acquainted. Moreover, he suffered much by sea while trying to save his own life and bring his men safely home. But do what he might, he could not save his men, for they perished through their own sheer folly in eating the cattle of the sun god Hyperion. So the god prevented them from ever reaching home. Tell me, too, about all these things, O daughter of Jove, from whatsoever source you may know them. So now, all who escaped death in battle or by shipwreck, had got safely home, except Ulysses, and he, 
though he was longing to return to his wife and country, was detained by the goddess Calypso, who had got him into a large cave and wanted to marry him. But as years went by, there came a time when the gods settled that he should go back to Ithaca. Even then, however, when he was among his own people, his troubles were not yet over. Nevertheless, all the gods had now begun to pity him, except Neptune, who still persecuted him without ceasing and would not let him get home. Now Neptune had gone off to the Ethiopians, who were at the world's end and lie in two halves, the one looking west and the other east. He had gone there to accept a hectatomb of sheep and oxen, and was enjoying himself at his festival. But the other gods met in the house of Olympian Jove, and the sire of gods and men spoke first. At that moment, he was thinking of Aegisthus, who had been killed by Agamemnon's son, Orestes. So he said to the other gods, <clears throat> See now how men lay blame upon us gods for what is after all nothing but their own folly. Look at Aegisthus. He must needs make love to Agamemnon's wife unrighteously and then kill Agamemnon, though he knew it would be the death of him. For I sent Mercury to warn him not to do either of these things, inasmuch as Orestes would be sure to take his revenge when he grew up and wanted to return home. Mercury told him this in all good will, but he would not listen, and now he has paid for everything in full. Then Minerva said, Father, son of Saturn, King of kings, it served Aegisthus right, and so it would anyone else who does as he did. But Aegisthus is neither here nor there. It is for Ulysses that my heart bleeds. When I think of his sufferings in that lonely sea-girt island, far away, poor man, from all his friends. It is an island covered with forest, in the very middle of the sea, and a goddess lives there, daughter of the magician Atlas, who looks after the bottom of the ocean and carries the great columns that keep heaven and earth asunder. This daughter of Atlas has got hold of poor unhappy Ulysses and keeps trying by every kind of blandishment to make him forget his home so that he is tired of life and thinks of nothing but how he may once more see the smoke of his own chimneys. You, sir, take no heed of this, and yet when Ulysses was before Troy, did he not propitiate you with many a burnt sacrifice? Why then should you keep on being so angry with him? And Jove said, My child, what are you talking about? How can I forget Ulysses, than whom there is no more capable man on earth, nor more liberal in his offerings to the immortal gods that live in heaven? Bear in mind, however, that Neptune is still furious with Ulysses 
for having blinded an eye of Polyphemus, king of the Cyclops. Polyphemus is son to Neptune by the nymph Thyssa, daughter to the sea king Phorces. Therefore, though he will not kill Ulysses outright, he torments him by preventing him from getting home. Still, let us lay our heads together and see how we can help him to return. Neptune will then be pacified, for if we are all of a mind, he can hardly stand out against us. And Minerva said, Father, son of Saturn, king of kings, if then the gods now mean that Ulysses should get home, we should first send Mercury to the Aegean island to tell Calypso that we have made up our minds and that he is to return. In the meantime, I will go to Ithaca to put heart into Ulysses' son, Telemachus. I will embolden him to call the Achaeans in assembly and speak to the suitors of his mother, Penelope, who persist in eating up any number of his sheep and oxen. I will also conduct him to Sparta and to Pylos to see if he can hear anything about the return of his dear father, for this will make people speak well of him. So, saying she bound on her glittering golden sandals imperishable, with which she can fly like the wind over land or sea, she grasped the redoubtable bronze-shod spear, so stout and sturdy and strong, wherewith she quells the ranks of heroes who have displeased her, and down she darted from the topmost summits of Olympus, whereon forthwith she was in Ithaca, at the gateway of Ulysses' house, disguised as a visitor, Mentes, chief of the Taphians, and she held a bronze spear in her hand. There she found the lordly suitors seated on hides of the oxen, which they had killed and eaten, and playing draughts in front of the house. Men's servants and pages were bustling about to wait upon them, some mixing wine with water in the mixing bowls, some cleaning down the tables with wet sponges and laying them out again, and some cutting up great quantities of meat. Telemachus saw her long before anyone else did. He was sitting moodily among the suitors, thinking about his brave father and how he would send them flying out of the house if he were to come to his own again and be honored as in days gone by. Thus brooding as he sat among them, he caught sight of Minerva and went straight to the gate, for he was vexed that a stranger should be kept waiting for admittance. He took her right hand in his own and bade her give him her spear. Welcome, said he, to our house, and when you have partaken of food, you shall tell us what you have come for. He led the way as he spoke, and Minerva followed him. When they were thin, he took her spear and set it in the spear stand against a strong bearing post, along with the many other spears of his unhappy father and he conducted her to a richly decorated seat under which he threw a cloth of damask. There was a footstool also for her feet, and he set another seat near her for himself, away from the suitors, 
that she might not be annoyed while eating by their noise and insolence, and that he might ask her more freely about his father. A maidservant then brought them water in a beautiful golden ewer and poured it into a silver basin for them to wash their hands, and she drew a clean table beside them. An upper servant brought them bread and offered them many good things of what there was in the house. The carver fetched them plates of all manner of meats and set cups of gold by their side, and a manservant brought them wine and poured it out for them. Then the suitors came in and took their places on the benches and seats. Forthwith, men servants poured water over their hands, maids went round with the bread baskets, pages filled the mixing bowls with wine and water, and they laid their hands upon the good things that were before them. As soon as they had had enough to eat and drink, they wanted music and dancing, which are the crowning embellishments of a banquet. So a servant brought a lyre to Phineas, whom they compelled perforce to sing to them. As soon as he touched his lyre and began to sing, Telemachus spoke low to Minerva, with his head close to hers, that no man might hear. I hope, sir, said he, that you will not be offended with what I am going to say. Singing comes cheap to those who do not pay for it, and all this is done at the cost of one whose bones lie rotting in some wilderness or grinding to powder in the surf. If these men were to see my father come back to Ithaca, they would pray for longer legs rather than a longer purse, for money would not serve them. But he, alas, has fallen on an ill fate, and even when people do sometimes say that he is coming, we no longer heed them. We shall never see him again. And now, sir, tell me, and tell me true who you are and where you come from. Tell me of your town and parents, what manner of ship you came in, how your crew brought you to Ithaca, and of what nation they declared themselves to be, for you cannot have come by land. Tell me also truly, for I want to know, are you a stranger to this house, or have you been here in my father's time? In the old days we had many visitors, for my father went about much himself. And Minerva answered, I will tell you truly and particularly all about it. I am Mentes, son of Anchilius, and I am king of the Taphians. I have come here with my ship and crew on a voyage to men of a foreign tongue, being bound for Temesa with a cargo of iron, and I shall bring back copper. As for my ship, it lies over yonder off the open country, away from the town, in the harbor of Rithrin, under the wooded mountain Nuritum. Our fathers were friends before us, as old Laertes will tell you, if you will go and ask him. They say, however, that he never comes to town now, and lives by himself in the country, faring hardly with an old woman to look after him and get his dinner for him, when he comes in tired from pottering about his vineyard. They told me your father was at home again, and that was why I came. But it seems the gods are still keeping him back, for he is not dead yet, not on the mainland. 
it is more likely he is on some seagirt island in mid-ocean, or a prisoner among savages who are detaining him against his will. I am no prophet, and know very little about omens, but I speak as it is borne in upon me from heaven, and I assure you that he will not be away much longer, for he is a man of such resource that even though he were in chains of iron, he would find some means of getting home again. But tell me, and tell me true, can Ulysses really have such a fine-looking fellow for a son? You are indeed wonderfully like him about the head and eyes, for we were close friends before he set sail for Troy, where the flower of all the Argives went also. Since that time, we have never either of us seen the other. My mother, answered Telemachus, tells me I am son to Ulysses, but it is a wise child that knows his own father. Would that I were son to one who had grown old upon his own estates? For since you ask me, there is no more ill-starred man under heaven than he who they tell me is my father. And Minerva said, There's no fear of your race dying out yet, while Penelope has such a fine son as you are. But tell me, and tell me true, what is the meaning of all this feasting, and who are these people? What is it all about? Have you some banquets, or is there a wedding in the family? For no one seems to be bringing any provisions of his own. And the guests, how atrociously they are behaving. What riots they make over the whole house. It is enough to disgust any respectable person who comes near them. Sir, said Telemachus, as regards your question, so long as my father was here, it was well with us and with the house, but the gods in their displeasure have willed it otherwise and have hidden him away more closely than mortal man was ever yet hidden. I could have borne it better even though he were dead if he had fallen with his men before Troy or had died with friends around him when the days of his fighting were done. For then the Achaeans would have built a mound over his ashes, and I should myself have been heir to his renown. But now the storm winds have spirited him away, we know not whither. He is gone without leaving so much as a trace behind him, and I inherit nothing but dismay. Nor does the matter end simply with grief for the loss of my father. Heaven has laid sorrows upon me of yet another kind, for the chiefs from all our islands, Dilichium, Sem, and the woodland island of Zacynthus, as also all the principal men of Ithaca itself, are eating up my house under the pretext of paying their court to my mother, who will neither point-blank say that she will not marry, nor yet bring matters to an end. So they are making havoc of my estate, and before long will do so also with myself. Is that so? exclaimed Minerva. Then you do indeed want Ulysses home again. Give him his helmet, shield, and a couple of lances, and if he is the man he was when I first knew him in our house, drinking and making merry, he would soon lay his hands about these rascally suitors, 
were he to stand once more upon his own threshold. He was then coming from Ephyra, where he had been to beg poison from his arrows from Ilus, son of Murmurus. Ilus feared the ever-living gods and would not give him any, but my father let him have some, for he was very fond of him. If Ulysses is the man he then was, these suitors will have a short shrift and a sorry wedding. But there, it rests with heaven to determine whether he is to return and take his revenge in his own house or no. I would, however, urge you to set about trying to get rid of these suitors at once. Take my advice. Call the Achaean heroes in assembly tomorrow morning. Lay your case before them, and call heaven to bear you witness. Bid the suitors take themselves off, each to his own place, and if your mother's mind is set on marrying again, let her go back to her father, who will find her a husband, and provide her with all the marriage gifts that so dear a daughter may expect. As for yourself, let me prevail upon you to take the best ship you can get with a crew of twenty men, and go in quest for your father, who has so long been missing. Someone may tell you something, or, and people often th hear things in this way, some heaven-sent message may direct you. First, go to Pylos and ask Nestor. Thence, go on to Sparta and visit Menelaus, for he got home last of all the Achaeans. If you hear that your father is alive and on his way home, you can put up with the waste these suitors will make for yet another twelve months. If, on the other hand, you hear of his death, come home at once, celebrate his funeral rites with all due pomp, build a barrow to his memory, and make your mother marry again. Then, having done all this, think it well over in your mind how, by fair means or foul, you may kill these suitors in your own house. You are too old to plead infancy any longer. Have you not heard how people are singing Orestes' praises for having killed his father's murderer, Agisthus? You are a fine, smart-looking fellow. Show your mettle, then, and make yourself a name in story. Now, however, I must go back to my ship and to my crew, who will be impatient if I keep them waiting longer. Think the matter over for yourself, and remember what I have said to you. Sir, answered Telemachus, it has been very kind of you to talk to me in this way, as though I were your own son, and I will do all you tell me. I know you want to be getting on with your voyage, but stay a little longer till you have taken a bath and refreshed yourself. I will then give you a present and you shall go on your way rejoicing. I will give you one of great beauty and value, a keepsake such as only dear friends give to one another. Minerva answered, Do not try to keep me, for I would be on my way at once. As for any present you may be disposed to make me, keep it till I come again, and I will take it home with me. You shall give me a very good one, and I will give you one of no less value in return. With these words, she flew away like a bird into the air. But she had given Telemachus courage 
and it made him think more than ever about his father. He felt the change, wondered at it, and knew that the stranger had been a god. So he went straight to where the suitors were sitting. Femius was still singing, and his hearers sat wrapped in silence as he told the sad tale of the return from Troy, and the ills Minerva had laid upon the Achaeans. Penelope, daughter of Icarius, heard his song from her room upstairs, and came down by the great staircase, not alone, but attended by two of her handmaids. When she reached the suitors, she stood by one of the bearing posts that supported the roof of the cloisters with a staid maiden on either side of her. She held a veil, moreover, before her face, and was weeping bitterly. Phemius, she cried, you know many another feat of gods and heroes such as poets love to celebrate. Sing the suitors some one of these, and let them drink their wine in silence. But cease this sad tale, for it breaks my sorrowful heart, and reminds me of my lost husband, whom I mourn ever without ceasing, and whose name was great over all Hellas and Middle Argus. Mother, answered Telemachus, let the bard sing what he has a mind to. Bards do not make the ills they sing of. It is Jove, not they, who makes them, and who sends weal or woe upon mankind according to his good pleasure. This fellow means no harm by singing the ill-fated return of the Danaeans, for people always applaud the latest songs most warmly. Make up your mind to it, and bear it, Ulysses is not the only man who never came back from Troy, but many another went down as well as he. Go then, within the house, and busy yourself with your daily duties, your loom, your distaff, and the ordering of your servants. For speech is man's matter, and mine above all others, for it is I who am master here. Then she went wandering back into the house, and laid her son's saying in her heart. Then, going upstairs with her handmaids into her room, she mourned her dear husband, till Minerva shed sweet sleep over her eyes. But the suitors were clamorous throughout the covered cloisters, and prayed each one that he might be her bedfellow. Then Telemachus spoke. Shameless! he cried, an insolent suitors. Let us feast at our pleasure now, and let there be no brawling, for it is a rare thing to hear a man with such a divine voice as Phemius has. But in the morning, meet me in full assembly, that I may give you formal notice to depart, and feast at one another's houses, turn and turn about at your own cost. If, on the other hand, you choose to persist in sponging upon one man, heaven help me, but Jove shall reckon with you in full. And when you fall in my father's house, there shall be no man to avenge you. The suitors bit their lips as they heard him, and marveled at the boldness of his speech. Then Antinous 
son of Eupethes, said, The gods seem to have given you lessons in bluster and tall talking. May Jove never grant you to be chief in Ithaca, as your father was before you. Telemachus answered, Antinous, do not chide with me, but God willing, I will be chief too, if I can. Is this the worst fate you can think of for me? It is no bad thing to be a chief, for it brings both riches and honor. Still, now that Ulysses is dead, there are a great many men in Ithaca, both old and young, and some other may take the lead among them. Nevertheless, I will be chief in my own house, and will rule those whom Ulysses has won for me. Then Eurymachus, son of Polybus, answered, It rests with heaven to decide who shall be chief among us, but you shall be master in your own house and over your own possessions. No one, while there is a man in Ithaca, shall do you violence nor rob you. And now, my good fellow, I want to know about this stranger. What country does he come from? Of what family is he, and where is his estate? Has he brought you news about the return of your father? Or was he on business of his own? It seemed a well-to-do man, but he hurried off so suddenly that he was gone in a moment before we could get to know him. My father is dead and gone, answered Telemachus. And even if some rumor reaches me, I put no more faith in it now. My mother does indeed sometimes send for a soothsayer and question him, but I give his prophesyings no heed. As for the stranger, he was Mentes, son of Anchialus, chief of the Taphians, an old friend of my father's. But in his heart he knew that it had been the goddess. The suitors then returned to their singing and dancing until the evening. But when night fell upon their pleasuring, they went home to bed, each in his own abode. Telemachus's room was high up in a tower that looked on to the outer court. Hither then he hied, brooding and full of thought. A good old woman, Euryclea, daughter of Ops, the son of Pisnor, went before him with a couple of blazing torches. Laertes, had bought her with his own money when she was quite young. He gave the worth of twenty oxen for her, and shewed as much respect to her in his household as he did to his own wedded wife. But he did not take her to his bed, for he feared his wife's resentment. She it was who now lighted Telemachus to his room, and she loved him better than any of the other women in the house did for she had nursed him when he was a baby. He opened the door of his bedroom and sat down upon the bed. As he took off his shirt, he gave it to the good old woman, who folded it tidily up and hung it for him over a peg by his bedside, after which she went out, pulled the door to by a silver catch, and drew the bolt home by means of the strap. But Telemachus as he lay covered with a woolen fleece, kept thinking all night through of his intended voyage and of the counsel that Minerva 
had given him. End of chapter one of the Odyssey. Okay, so overall, I would say this is not actually a boring book. I would not side with the reviewers on that fact. I actually found that it set it up, set itself up for a very compelling tale. Um, this first chapter or book, if you want to call it that, had some really fascinating points that I will get to in just one moment. But before I do, I want to qualify everything I'm about to say by saying that um, I didn't catch up on this because I'm not well versed in Greek or Roman mythology. But when Samuel Butler translated this into English, he transposed the Greek equivalent into a Roman equivalent, probably for the audience's sake. Perhaps people weren't as well versed in Greek mythology as they were in Roman mythology. So when you've got people like Ulysses being spoken here, it is referring indeed to Odysseus, which kind of throws the title off for a loop because it's named the Odyssey um, regarding an adventure to search for Odysseus. But that's not here nor there. Um, that was the author's choice. And then we've got Minerva, which is actually in Greek mythology, Athena. And then we have Calypso, who was, you know, holding Odysseus captive in a cave. And her Greek equivalent is, well, Calypso, which is kind of confusing. But I just wanted to point that out to you if you were as confused as I was when I initially read this chapter. But despite that fact, we get kind of like a little setup here, okay? All the Greek gods are in council at Olympian Jove's house, and they're all like, ooh, you know, what are we going to do about Odysseus? And Athena raises her hand and is like, I kind of feel sorry for him. Like, he kind of had the bad, got the bad end of the stick. And everybody's like, well, you know, Neptune over here, you know, has a grudge against him. So I don't know if we really want to upset that guy. And she's like, well, if we can kind of, you know, you know, play around with humanity and, like, Odysseus's son, Telemachus, and just kind of, you know, like, implant in him, you know, kind of like an Inception type thing, like, hey, your father may still be alive. Maybe you should go searching for him, you know, type of thing. Maybe we can get this guy back, you know, and, and then Neptune won't really care when he comes back from his trip from Ethiopia. And so Athena volunteers to travel down in human form, um, disguised as an old friend of Odysseus, and goes to speak with Telemachus and gives him a rather fortuitous look outlook on uh, his father's you know, existence and kind of plants that seed of, hey, if I know your father... He's definitely still alive. He's a very resourceful man. And I don't think you should give up hope quite yet. And, you know, subject your mother to the wolves of all of these people going after her fortune to marry her and get in bed with her. So uh, Telemachus is understandably intrigued by her assumptions 
and she kind of takes on the role of mentor for him disguised as a father figure uh, which also can be kind of confusing if you think about it a little bit too hard um, but regardless of that fact that is how the Odyssey starts um, and I don't find it boring at all one area that I think a lot of people would attribute to it being a boring book, which is a, a side pet peeve of mine, okay? Like, I have a lot of empathy for people who think this way, uh, but for people who don't take a stab at words they don't know how to pronounce, it's kind of frustrating to me, especially since we have access nowadays to the wonderful world of Google. And I have attached a pronunciation guide to my show notes because I want to show you I bothered to look up these pronunciations of these strange Greek slash Roman names because I think it's important to not get hung up on how to pronounce a word because then you lose sight of the meaning of whatever you're reading. And... Uh, I think that that causes people to just be like, oh my gosh, like, you know, and all these types of things. Let me tell you, I did grow up reading the Bible, and um, the Old Testament was especially hard because it was written uh, with a lot of Hebrew and Hebrew names. And, uh, you know, as like a second grader, as you're trying to pronounce all of these words and read, you can get kind of like bogged down uh, with all of these like strange names that you read in the Bible. Um, and I just, you know, took a healthy stab at them, had fun with it. And that's kind of what impelled me and propelled me in my reading journey because um, I, I found that it was more entertaining to, you know, take a stab at something and then just totally botch the pronunciation of it than to not even attempt it at all. It was actually kind of uncomfortable to everybody around me if I was just like, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that word, so I'm just gonna, uh, you know, type of thing, and it was just really uncomfortable. And I get it. Maybe you were somebody who was pressured or was constantly around somebody who was always correcting you on your pronunciations of words and for that I apologize I may have been one of those people but on the whole I was still pretty empathetic um, even as a young lad so uh, I would say to you don't give up uh, continue you know just take a stab at words you don't understand and then look them up later um, honestly a lot of these words in Greek and Roman uh, you'll probably, it's not as important to pronounce them correctly purely because nobody, you know, has these names uh, any longer other than maybe Pen Penelope, which you should probably know how to say. But, um, like, Agisthus or Agamemnon, like, you're probably not going to bring that up in conversation. Or, yeah, I just went surfing off of Ojigia. No, like, you're not going to say that. So... Um, I think it's fine to just take a stab and move on um, so you don't obscure the, the, the overall plot of whatever you're reading because it, it helps clear things up when you're not stumbling over words. 
and you can actually focus on the storyline. So that's my soapbox that I'm going to get off of right now. Just pronounce words however the heck you feel like it and just move on with your life so you can actually understand what you're reading. And especially if you're reading to young children, they love it when you struggle with words pronunciations. And so just make it really fun and it will make it enjoyable for both you and them. Um, and fun times and joy will be had all around. So thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite Phil Olson. And as they say in showbiz, that's all he wrote for now.